I felt that uh, pit in my stomach, that knotted, gnawing feeling when things aren't right. I was really having trouble focusing on, on anything else. I was at home trying to work on this sermon, but my heart and my mind were elsewhere. I was preoccupied. My little boy socks, uh, I think we have a photo, you've seen him before. My little boy socks was not doing well. Um, I had been in the process of moving, moved to a new place, and uh, socks was... Um, he wasn't handling the move well to begin with. His first couple days, he literally stayed in the bed under the covers, venturing out only to use the litter box. He was not eating. He was not drinking. He was terrified. And what happened was that he uh, ended up developing a bladder infection, uh, which is something that happens when cats get really anxious for a really long time. And I knew something was up because he started spending a lot of time in the litter box right as he was starting to get used to the place, right as he was starting to seem to be more comfortable and not as anxious. He was sniffing things out and everything. Then he started going to the litter box every hour, then every 30 minutes, and then every 10 minutes. And it was about every five minutes he was in the litter box straining to do something. I wasn't really sure what because there wasn't a lot left over afterwards. But, but then everything started to look like a litter box, I mean, you know, he had this little cat bed, and he, he peed on it, and it had to go to the dumpster. And then he had another cat bed, and, and it became a litter box, and it went to the dumpster. And then I caught him. I have another photo here. Um, uh, that gray thing on the right up against the wall, that's my brand-new litter box, according to Socks. Um, I caught him just in the nick of time, squatting on a blanket on my brand new couch that I just got from West Elm. That thing cost a lot of money. And, okay, the blanket went in the washer. Uh, and then he hit my bed. And by then, you know, I was calling the vet. And I have a great vet. She, Pam Clary, Mobile Veterinary Services, she, she makes house calls. So the vet came over and checked out Socks and found that, in fact, Socks' little bladder was completely empty but swollen, and, and he was in a lot of pain. And so he was constantly straining to, to, to keep his bladder completely empty because of the pain. And, and, you know, she injected him with an antibiotic. She injected him with a drug to take down the inflammation. She gave him some subcutaneous water, $260 bill, uh, told him that if he didn't start using the restroom within a few hours, I was going to have to take him to the hospital. And so I'm pacing the floor wondering, is he going to use, he's been using the litter box all day, but is he going to use it now, like actually, and have like this massive amount of water they just injected under his, his skin to kind of start to flush out. And, and he starts to get better, and I think things are okay, but the vet had pressed on me that I have to lower his anxiety level. Um, she said, go, go to the pet store, get feel away, get some pheromones, put them everywhere, make him feel completely comfortable. He cannot, he will not get well if he's anxious. If I can't get his anxiety down, he's going to be hospitalized. And so, so I, I get all that stuff, I put it in there, but then after the vet leaves, um, Leela, my other cat, uh, I got another photo here, um, they were best buds, but Socks picked up a smell off of the vet. 
And Leela starts to growl and hiss, and she begins to attack Socks. She, she thinks Socks is a wolf. Socks is a big, ferocious wolf, smells like a wolf, uh, looks like Socks, but smells all wrong, and, and a wolf has invaded her personal space. And so Leela is getting really, really anxious, and she attacks poor little, you know, bladder problem Socks. And I do everything I can to, to separate them. I grab Leela, and, and, you know, I'm pulling her back, this ferocious lion at this point. She's a lot bigger cat, and she's got all claws and fangs. She's hissing, and Socks, in self-defense, makes a little swipe. It had been weeks since I had cut anybody's claws. I had been boxing stuff up and moving to a new place, and uh, he, he hit my leg. We got another photo. We won't keep this one up long, but five puncture marks, each one at least a quarter of an inch thick. That's enough of that slide. We don't want to see that. You can do something else. Thank you. Uh, and I just, I'm, I'm, I'm worried. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I, I, he has spent the last 48 hours in a litter box, and his litter paws just went, you know, a third of an inch into my leg in five different locations. I have not had a tetanus booster in 15 years, and there is no telling what was in the litter box that just ended up buried in the middle of my muscle. Uh, and then, so I'm like, what am I going to get, what's going to happen? And then, and then it's, it's like within, within four hours, I was burning up, and I went and got the thermometer. It was in a box somewhere. I found it. I was, I was shaking, and I, my, my, I was running a fever. I had gotten an infection. This was like the perfect row of dominoes. I moved, therefore, I'm calling the doctor and getting put on, you know, zithromycin. So uh, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, what am I, what am I going to, what's going to happen here? What if these cats never get along again? What if you know, I mean, I did everything. You go online, you know, say, oh, rub them both down with pure vanilla extract. Okay. I had two cats who wish death on each other who both smell like vanilla. It's, it's like a bad scented candle walking by on the way to the litter box. It's disgusting. So I haven't separated. I'm wondering, like, am I going to have to get rid of one of my, 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 my cats? And, and Socks, he's going to end up hospitalized because his anxiety level is 10 times what it was because there's a giant ferocious lion trying to bite his neck, uh, you know, what if it doesn't improve? Uh, what if I can't get the sermon prepared? Uh, how, how, what if I fall even further behind? What if the antibiotics don't knock out this infection as my leg is swelling up like a baseball? It's, it's anxiety. It's that gnawing feeling in the pit of your stomach. What does the future hold? How bad is it going to get? We all know something about anxiety. Now, if you're a kid, you know, for you, anxiety may be that feeling you get when your mom and dad aren't around. You have to leave them. It may be that feeling you get going into a new school for the first time where you don't know anybody on the first day of class, that moment when you open the door to your classroom and you walk into a room full of people that you have never seen before in your life and there are all these kids looking at you and you don't know them and there's a teacher that you've never met. It's that feeling you get when you've watched a really scary movie and you can't fall asleep that night. 
when you have to go down into a dark basement and the light switch isn't working, that feeling you have being in a, a crowd with lots of people and you get separated from your family and you don't know where they are and you don't know where you are and you, you can't find anyone to help. It's, it's that fear that you have when kids at school have been picking on you and you just dread the thought of getting on the school bus. You dread the thought of going through that door again. For all of us, what is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that makes your stomach churn? What is it that you dread? If the future were bound up in a scroll, what would it hold and what are you most afraid of? Perhaps uh, if you're a student, you may be anxious about your grades. Will I do well enough? Will I be able to move forward? What will my parents think? Uh, For all of us, you know, what what if other people don't like me? What if they think I'm ugly? What if they think I'm stupid? What if they think I'm awkward? What if I am awkward? Would I know I were awkward if I was awkward? What if everybody else snickers at me and thinks I'm weird and I'm not even aware of it? Am I going to be alone forever? Will anyone ever love me for my own sake? You know, what if I never meet that special someone? It's anxiety. What if something happens to me? What if I'm in an accident or a trip or fall? What if I get a disease? What if I become injured and I can't work? What if I end up bedridden? What if I end up with tubes coming in and out of me, being rolled over every two hours so I don't get bed sores? What if I'm conscious the whole time, but they all think I'm in a coma? what, What does the future hold? That feeling you get when you're waiting for test results because something's going on and you don't know what and they've done all sorts of blood work and you're waiting for the results and you put it out of your mind and it's been days and then your phone vibrates and you look down and it's your doctor's office. You know the results are in. It's that feeling you get right when you push the button and take the call and ask what's up. That feeling new parents get the first time they take their first child home and there's no one to help out. You're not sure what to do or whether you'll do it right. You're worried, will my baby nurse? What if my baby's not really getting enough nutrition? Uh, What if I can't hear her cry? What if I don't know what she really needs? What if there's something wrong with her and we don't know it yet? What if I accidentally do something and hurt her? That's anxiety. How do I know that my children are going to grow up into godly men and women? What if they reject God? What if they don't want anything to do with God? What if 20 years from now they don't want anything to do with me? What if I've hurt them or damaged them so much that they're ashamed of me and they don't want me in their life? What if they reject me in the workplace? What if I fail at a project? What if I fail at an assignment? What if I can't do the job? How secure is your job? When you ask yourself, really, how, how secure is your job for real? Is it as secure as you think it is? You know, we, we know that feeling you get when it's 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon and your boss asks you to come in to her office and she asks you to sit down and she's being unusually gentle with you and you know what time it is. You know the day of the week. You know what this means when she sits down and says, I'm really sorry. get anxious about money. What if you're not able to pay your bills? What if you don't have enough money stored up for retirement? What if your advisor told you you were going to get 6% return and you realize you're only getting two and a half? Are you going to be able to help your kids through college? What if you crunch the numbers and your heart starts to rush and your palms start to sweat? It's that feeling you get when, when, when you get your credit card statement and you know what you've got in the bank and you look at your credit card statement and you're looking at all these places and you remember being at all these places. There are no errors, but you look at that number and you know you're not going to be able to pay it. Anxiety about our relationships. 
What if your marriage doesn't work out? What if your spouse changes? What if your spouse decides that you've changed and they're just not into it anymore? It's that fear that we all have. For some of us, it's anxiety related to social situations, having to go into a room full of strangers and make small talk, keeping up a conversation. What if I'm not able to do it? It's that feeling you get when you're overburdened and stretched thin and you're unable to get everything done and the perspiration is forming on your forehead as you remember that one more thing that you had forgotten that now you have to juggle that. It's it's that feeling I've heard uh, uh, parents describe when the third baby is on the way and they feel like they're drowning underwater and they're going down and their lungs are filling up with water and they're just barely getting their fingers over the surface when somebody hands them a baby. anxiety of, of, will I be able to handle this? What is it that makes your heart race? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that fills you with dread? What is it that fills your soul with worry? The early Christians understood a thing or two about anxiety. They and the apostle John at the end of the first century were preparing to face the largest persecution that the empire in Rome had seen against the Christians to date. In the midst of their worry, their fear, their uncertainty, their anxiety as they're facing losing their homes and they're going to lose their businesses and their freedoms. And for some, will they lose their spouses? Will they lose their kids? Will they lose their parents? Will they lose their very lives? They knew anxiety. And in the midst of all of that fear and insecurity, the worry, uncertainty, and anxiety, Jesus Christ takes John the apostle and he abducts him and takes him away from this world and abducts him to a different world, a world where Jesus is on his throne, a world where where God is in control. It's this unveiling that we see in the apocalypse, in the, in the, the book of Revelation, an unveiling in which a voice says, come up here and I will show you what's really happening. It's a different world, but it's really the same world, only the same world from the perspective of heaven. And from that heavenly vantage point, John is confronted with the scroll of history, the scroll of salvation, the scroll within which is bound up God's future blessings for you and for all of his people, the scroll that has in it the salvation and blessings of God. This is Revelation 5, chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. It's the word of the Lord. John writes... Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven and no one on earth and no one under the earth could open the scroll or even peep inside it. And so I wept and I wept. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw the lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. John continues. Then I looked, and I heard a voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. That's 100 million. They encircled the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Two points today. First main point. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what the future holds, and that's why we fall apart. Did you see what happened to John when nobody could open the scroll? The scroll of blessing, the scroll, it looks something like this. We've got a slide here. Um, it's before the codex, what we think of as the book bound on the side was developed. The scroll, and you, you unfold it, and within it, it's got all of God's future blessings. God's justice, God's mercy, God's salvation, God actually redeeming all of this mess and chaos and pain and tears in which we live. And it's got seven seals on it, and nobody can open it. They're passing it around the throne of heaven. They're seeing if anybody in heaven can open it. And all the angels try, a hundred million angels, none of them can make it open. They try all the the elders. The elders are like, we're stumped. We can't figure this one out. And, And it's evident that no one can open the scroll and no one can secure blessings for your future. We don't know what the future holds. And when that dawns on John, when he realizes the hopelessness and the despair of the situation, that in all of this pain and suffering and fear and anxiety, there was no one who could actually bring about redemption. No one who could actually refloat the sunken ship. He falls apart. The text in English, it says in the NIV, uh, it says he wept and wept. Uh, And that's not really what the Greek is communicating. Because that, to me, is like somebody with tears going down their head and a sniffle, and they're kind of rubbing their eyes, and, you know, maybe they get a little emotional. There's something more going on here. You know, it's it's describing a man whose world has fallen apart, and so he is blubbering. He is crying. He is wailing uncontrollably. He is falling apart just like the world in which he lives. What happens when you realize that life is a disappointment, that, that it's damaged, it's shattered, and it's broken, and you cannot even pick up the pieces, so great is the damage. When you realize that you can't fix this, you can't fix your kids, you can't fix your marriage, you can't fix yourself. When you realize how bad it is, how bad the fall is, that's when the anxieties can overtake you and you you come to this point of collapse where you realize, I can't hold this together anymore. 
it, it's like the story of Humpty Dumpty, you know, with the kids in catechism class. When I used to teach the catechism class, um, we would all do the thing where you get the egg and you put the eyeballs on it and you paint it and you give it little arms and you give it little legs and you make it just the most perfect little egg person in the world. And we took them halfway up the tower and, uh, and, and we named them, you know, Humpty. And, uh, and then we saw what happens when, uh, when you fall. And then we went down, went outside, had to get parental permission, all that, you know, you know and looked. And it was pretty hopeless because there was no way you were going to get that yolk back into that egg, even if you could piece the shell back together. It's what happened with the fall. It's what happened to our first parents. It's our human nature. It's that bad. It's that broken. I have another picture here. Um, this is the before of, of Humpty. And uh, we've got an after shot as well. Uh, yeah, it's, you're not going to repair that. There's just no way. And the yolk is just splattered everywhere. It's in the sun. It's starting to bake. You're kind of getting scrambled eggs. There's no way. And that's what John is realizing is that that's, that's, that's where he is. And there's nobody who can fix it. There's nobody who can come to help make it right. The translation makes it sound, oh, he wept and wept. That's not what happened. This is the wail of somebody who has come to the end of his rope and let go, and there is nothing he can do about it. We've got a a video clip of one cultural analyst's interpretation of what this looked like. It's a family Sunday. It's only four times a year. Kids are all in the service. But, you know, when your world collapses, you know, his world collapsed and he fell apart because there was no hope. It's because we can't know what the future holds, and we can't fix it. We can't repair it. We can't make it right. We don't know what the future holds, and so our lives are filled with a constant state of anxiety, and the more we dwell on the fact that we can't fix it, the more it can take hold in our hearts because there's no one who can break open the seals. There's no one who can take charge of the future. There is no one who can ensure the blessings to come. There's no one who can fix it, no one to right the ship, no one to to establish a future for us, No one can break open the scroll. We don't know what the future holds. But then something happened. Because while we don't know what the future holds, there is one who takes hold of the future. In the midst of all of this, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, steps forward. He lays hold of the scroll, and he is able to break 
open the seals. Notice the circles here. We've got like concentric circles in the picture. You've got Jesus, uh, the Lamb of God, at the center of the universe. He's on the throne. He's symbolically pictured with seven horns. He didn't really have horns. He's, he's incarnate, but, but he's pictured that way because a horn represents power, and seven represents completion. He alone has complete power to take hold of your future and give you a destiny. And around him is this circle of living creatures, four living creatures, the heavenly hosts, and they represent the angels who minister to God, and they fall down and worship the Lamb. And then around them are elders, 24 of them, representing 12 tribes of Israel and 12 disciples, 12 apostles in the New Testament. And the elders, notice the elders' job. What are they doing? They've each got a harp, and they've each got a bowl full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. And and elders, that your job is not primarily to sit around and make important decisions. Your job is to lead the people in the worship of God, that's the harp, and intercede before Jesus Christ and bring the people's prayers to God, to the one who sits on the throne, who takes hold of the future, who breaks open the seals, and the, the elders are worshiping God. And then around them, You've got 100 million angels, 10,000 times 10,000, 100 million angels, and they're worshiping the Lamb and offering Him praise. And then around the angels, you see every voice in creation. That's the cats and the dogs and bald eagles and harbor seals and butterflies and pufferfish and earthworms if they make any noise. Every voice in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea, they're all bowing down and worshiping the Lamb, Jesus. They're all praising Christ. I've got a diagram of this for you diagram people, because this is the book of Revelation, and you've got to have a diagram. But the throne at the center of Jesus, around him, the four beasts, and around him, the 24 elders, and around him, a hundred million angels, and around him, the cats and dogs and squirrels and butterflies, all creation. And remember, this is showing him the world as it actually is. This is not make-believe. He's abducting him to a different world, which is this world from heaven's perspective. Jesus at the center of history, the center of creation, the one through whom all things were made, the one who is altogether sovereign. When we talk on Reformation Sunday about the sovereignty of our God, it is not the abstract fatalism of an impersonal deity. It is the face of Jesus who died for you. He's at the center of the throne. And he takes hold of the scroll, and he can break open its seals. Jesus said, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Jesus said, a bird cannot fall to the ground without the will of your Father in heaven. He is completely in charge. Nothing is taking him by surprise. He's able to overrule all of the evil to accomplish his plan of redemption. Now, some of you are looking at me and you're saying, um, all right, uh, sure, God, I know you say you can use ugly, horrible, painful things to create something beautiful, but I don't see it. 
You're thinking, that's not my experience. I have not seen how the suffering and the tears that I have wept have brought any good anywhere at any time in the cosmos. I don't see how anything good could ever come out of them. I don't see how God could use them. And that's not your experience. And that was not the experience of the early Christians because they were too close to their own tears to understand the redemptive purpose of God. John only sees it when he's taken up to heaven and shown from outside of this bubble of time and space in which we live shown from an infinite vantage point, then and then alone can he see what God is doing and how God really is in control. They were facing persecution and prison and torture and death for their faith in Jesus. But the whole point of John's apocalypse, his unveiling, is to give us his perspective, God's perspective from outside of space and time. You say, Greg, no way. Um, Greg, this is what my life looks like. I got another slide here. My life is a garbled, splotchy mess. And you look at those big, ugly, brown splotches. Those are some of the most painful, heartbreaking times in my life when my heart was ripped out and stomped on, when I felt so betrayed, when I was so vulnerable and taken advantage of. Those are the times in which I wept. The sorrow, the darkness, the despair, they're ugly And that's what my life looks like. And yet, if you step back, as John does, and are taken up to see from a heavenly perspective, we got the same one zoomed out. You see, you know, Georges Surat, uh, the Grand Jatte. And in the canvas of history, God is not going to let even a single ugly brown splotch that you go through be wasted. He is not going to waste a single tear, a single heartbreak, a single loss. Uh, He is going to use it. That's what John is saying, that he is in control. Jesus is on his throne and all of these things, all of the evil that men do, even that is being overruled to create something that, that, that when the day comes, we too will be able to see. Every time you feel like your heart is punctured and pierced through, understand that a day is coming when you will see that every single one of those stitches was creating a beautiful tapestry that speaks of the glory and the praise and the honor of God, a grand panorama of creation coming to worship Jesus, the Savior. And this affects how we live. It affects how we pray. When you see Jesus in the midst of your pain and your suffering, when you have the faith to realize that Jesus is on his throne, in reality, here, even if we can't always see it, it can give us a non-anxious presence in the midst of the worst pain and suffering and sorrow, in the midst of fear and anxiety and uncertainty, because you've got Jesus Because you know that whatever happens, he's in control. He's not going to let anything happen that he is not going to plan and use for his own glory and for your good. It's what Paul said in in Romans 8 when he said that God is working everything, even the suffering, together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. You see, an anxious presence is always reacting, but a non-anxious presence, the presence of Jesus responds 
instead of reacting. It doesn't allow you know, your sympathetic nervous system to take over and get overexcited and lead you to react out of raw emotion and foolishness. It's, it's, it can respond in peace. As Jesus said, peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. I don't give you as the world gives, so don't let your hearts be troubled and don't, don't be afraid. The story is told of a ship and its crew in peril at sea. We've got a slide here. And in the uh, deck below, the men were being tossed back and forth. And with each pitch of the sea, they became more and more convinced that they weren't going to make it through this storm alive. And one of the crew managed his way up to the bridge to, to see if there was any chance that they might actually survive. And several minutes went by when he then returned down below deck to his shipmates. And though the seas had only grown worse and angrier, he reported to them that everything was going to be fine. And they asked, how can you know that? He said, I've just been up to the bridge. And I saw the captain. And he was smiling. See, the non-anxious presence of Christ, knowing that there's somebody at the helm. Somebody does. Yeah, you don't have your hand on the wheel. You don't know what the future holds. But there's one who holds the future. He is holding that wheel. He is keeping that ship afloat. And he is going to get it to its final destination. And that's what can then give us a non-anxious presence. The peace of Christ in our hearts. Giving us then a posture in suffering and in praying of open hands. Not freaking out trying to get God to do your will. Trying to get God to hold your idol back in place. Trying to keep God to... to, to to surrender to your agenda and give you what you think you need. But when all of that falls apart, you can say, God, I don't know what you're doing. But I know you hold the future. And you are my Savior. You have loved me. You are the Lamb. You died for me. You've got my back. And I know I trust you with the wheel, Lord. And so even in my prayer, I'm not begging and demanding that you do what I want. I'm saying, God, I pray you would give me Whatever I would ask for if I knew what you know. Because you're the one who's in control. You're my father. You got my back. I remember in, in seminary, I uh, was always one who stressed over grades, and I was wanting to go on and do a Ph.D., and, and that means you really can't get A-minuses if you want somebody to pay you to go get a Ph.D. Uh, and so I would really stress over it, but every time, you know, I, before an exam, I would pray, and I'd say, you know, Father... I really want to get an A on this. I think that's what I need if I'm supposed to go the course that I think I'm supposed to go on. But you already know what grade I'm going to get because you decreed it before creation. And if it's a C plus, I, I want to be okay with that. And there's nothing I'm going to do to change that. I've done my part of doing what I can to prepare for this. But going to bed tonight, tomorrow's the exam. I'm saying, Lord, you're sovereign. And you're my father. And you died. You sent your son to die for me. And, and if I get a C-, minus, then there is nothing I'm going to do to get anything but a C-. minus. It could not be otherwise. And if that means I don't get a PhD, then you don't want me getting a PhD. And I'm okay with that because you hold the future. I don't know what the future holds, but you hold the future. And you're my father. See, it affects how you live. It affects how you pray when you see the non-anxious presence of Jesus taking charge of the wheel. A day is coming. A day is coming when this amazing work of art that God is creating and weaving through history, this amazing tapestry is going to be revealed. 
And that's when we're going to see God redeeming the things that we thought unredeemable. That's when you're going to gaze in wonder and amazement. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be breathtaking. It's going to fill you with worship as if you've never worshipped before because the unveiling is coming. And John shows us a glimpse now here in Revelation 5. Jesus at the center. Jesus in control. Jesus worthy to break open the seals, open the scroll, and secure our future We don't know what the future holds, but there's one who holds the future, and he is worthy to do so because he purchased you. He bought you through his blood. How did he pay for you? Listen to how they sing. You are worthy to take the scroll because you purchased men for God from every tongue and tribe and language and nation. There is no greater payment that he could have paid But it's as if they said, the cost is the blood of Jesus. You have to die. And Jesus said, okay. And he marched right up to the register, and he got in line, and he got to the register, and he gave his life. He's the lamb. There's a story from the Crusades of a a Norman lord, Grimbald de Ponsfort, who went off to Outremer, to the Holy Land, to do battle And he served valiantly, but he was captured in battle. And when his troops requested terms for his release, the Saracens shocked them by how they replied. They said, we will release your Lord, Grimbald. But the cost will be the severed hand of his young bride. And his troops, they thought they would have to go back to France, to Normandy, to raise money. Instead, they sent word to the court And on hearing the news, the Lady Eleanor wept and wept for her husband, whom she loved so dearly. And then she called for the castle barber, they were the surgeons, to gather their equipment. And she sent her hand, her left hand, by boat to the Holy Land as purchase price to regain her beloved Prince Grimbald. That's what Jesus did for you. Only it wasn't his hand, it was his life. No cost could be higher. The elders sing, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He purchased you. He died for you. He paid the price to open the seals. He paid the price to secure your future. And the price is now paid in full. You have a Savior. His name is Jesus, and he loves you deeply. I love Anna Dudney's 2005 children's book, Llama Llama Red Pajama. Anybody read it? Yeah, we got some llama people here. I love it in part because I love llamas, but I also love baby animals of all sorts, and I think it captures our world of anxiety and fear and worry. Um, Do that first slide. I'm going to read this to you. Llama Llama, red pajama, reads a story with his mama. Mama kisses baby's hair. Mama Llama goes downstairs. Llama Llama, red pajama, feels alone without his mama. Baby Llama wants a drink. Mama's at the kitchen sink. Llama Llama, red pajama, calls down to his mama. It's Llama Mama. Mama Llama. Says she'll be up soon. Baby llama hums a tune. Llama llama, red pajama. 
waiting, waiting for his mama. Mama isn't coming yet. Baby llama starts to fret. Llama llama, red pajama, whimpers softly for his mama. Mama llama, hears the phone. Baby llama starts to moan. Llama llama, red pajama. Uh, Wow, this is little. He listens quiet for his mama. What is Mama Llama doing? Baby Llama starts boohooing. Llama Llama red pajama hollers loudly for his mama. Baby Llama stomps and pouts. Baby Llama jumps and shouts. Llama Llama red pajama in the dark without his mama. Eyes wide open, covers drawn. What if Mama Llama's gone? Llama Llama red pajama waiting, waiting for his mama. Mama isn't coming yet. Baby Llama starts to fret. I already did that. Okay, what if Mama Llama's gone? Okay, here we are. Llama Llama, red pajama, weeping, wailing for his mama. Will his mama ever come? Mama Llama, run, run, run! Baby Llama, what a tizzy. Sometimes Mama's very busy. Please stop all this llama drama and be patient for your mama. Llama Llama, don't you know? Mama Llama loves you so. Mama Llama's always near, even if she's not right here. Llama Llama, red pajama, gets two kisses from his mama. Snuggles pillow soft and deep. Baby Llama goes to sleep. Friends, if you have Jesus, you have a father. And he's more than a Llama Mama. He's your dad. And his son, Jesus, though we don't know what the future holds, he has taken hold of history, and your destiny is certain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the one. You are the non-anxious presence that comes into our lives, that speaks into our lives, that heals, that comforts, that takes charge of the future. Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we have uh, not seen you, the ways we've been blind, the ways we get so wrapped up in all our anxiety, wondering if you're there, wondering if you care. Forgive us for all the sins that come from our anxiety. We thank you that you have washed us and made us clean, that the Lamb of God has purchased us for God from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, and that we belong now. Lord, we thank you for this for the cleansing of sin, and for the certainty of a future. Lord, we consecrate to you the elements of this table that you administer the grace of God to us. Help us see Jesus as we consecrate this to you now in the name of Christ. Amen.